Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. everyone, it's uh, Roxanne Durhodge. Thanks for tuning in again this week to Authentic Living with Roxanne. I have a guest that I've had before, and uh, it's psychologist and psychoanalyst uh, Karen Messina. And Karen brings a perspective that I think we need, as the average person, to explore further. Karen was, uh, I believe, one of my podcasts. It's about almost a year and a half to almost two years ago. And we talked a lot about kind of the space we're in as, as people with everything that we've been going through in the last couple of years. And Karen's just released a new book um, on, um, you know, the, the concept of where are we, where is the power, power that is and the imbalances and some of the uh, blame shifting that's occurring. And I'm going to let Karen tell you the full title. And we're just going to have a juicy conversation about this book, which is um, it sounds like a spectacular uh, piece of work. So, Karen, thanks again for uh, being here with us. Well, thank you, Roxanne. It's wonderful to be back talking with you. I, I just love the last podcast we did. So I'm really looking forward to this one. The title of the book is Resurgence of Global Populism, a Psychoanalytic Study of Projective Identification, which I'll explain, Blame Shifting and the Corruption of Democracy. So I kind of uh, think of my um, talks about my book as the who, what, where, why, and how populism today. I think perhaps six or seven years ago, just to market in time and Obama was president, I don't think people were really talking much about populism. Uh, and I frankly, I, I'm not even sure I knew what it meant then. But but things have changed. This is a different world. And so I have written this book so I can try to help uh, spread the word about its meaning and its impact. Let's start there then, Karen. Um, for some of the people that had the pleasure, I know we touched on some of that the last time, but for the average person that doesn't understand what popularism is, what is it and what is it not? That's an excellent question. As, and as I said, several years back, I, I didn't know what it is either. But it's basically, it, it's hard to describe. There have been books written about this very topic, about the difficulty in describing it, because it can be slightly different in each country. And it is around the world. There is populism around the world now. So if you think of democracy, populism, and then an autocratic way of dealing with governance. That's, it's kind of the middle spot before you go to a dictatorship. So it's a political movement. Um, it's usually led by a very charismatic leader who claims that the people who he's trying to lead or is leading have been cheated by the elite or the establishment. And this person, I say he, there are, I mean, there are a couple of women who are involved in this too. Primarily it's been men, but that doesn't mean that it can't be women. Anyway, this charismatic leader says that 
he or she is going to change things, give back to the people what is rightfully theirs, and it makes a lot of promises. Um, rarely, and I don't know if it's ever been the case, that people get back all of the things that have been promised. Now, that's probably true of most politicians. They have great ideas and they can't always make things happen. But this is a little more insidious because often the, the person knows they can't really do it, but they they want to win. They want to get the support of the people and therefore they promise just about everything. Um, so it's a little bit more than just promising then, right? Because I would say that most of us would believe that, and this is, I know, um, a belief that you hear from the average person that with every campaign, and you know, I'm in Canada or, you know, you being in the U.S., that, you know, people, you know, whoever the, you know, the incumbent is, that, you know, the person that's trying to come in is going to dispute or um, negate potentially um, things that were done in that previous administration and promise, promise, promise. But populism, you're saying popularism is a little bit deeper in that the leader or the group of leaders are they aware that they can make change or is it that they're trying to tap into something um, within people that makes them believe that this is the actual leader that can do it? I, the, the latter. They, they use a lot of deception and they promote, promote false beliefs. Uh, lying is commonplace. That's a thread, no matter how different it may be in different countries. That's a thread that runs throughout populist countries, that there's a lot of lying, a lot of deceit. And the, these leaders infuse movements with uh, emotion. For example, they'll, they might be at um, a rally and they really get people going to believe what they want them to believe. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. They just get them all riled up. So the, then these people leave and they're out to do this and do that. And, and in many cases, do what populist leaders have, have either suggested or said directly for them to do. So it also uh, eliminates free speech. So would you say that through the, through the ages that there has always been this concept of popularism? Or would you say that it's been gaining momentum um, in the last, say, you know, decade or two? I think you get to go to the head of the class because that's a very good question. It's old and it's been gaining momentum. It's actually, I read that it, it goes back to ancient Greece. So it's obviously that was a long time ago. So it's not, it's not a, a new concept for sure, but it has gained momentum. And I can get into this in, in a minute or two, but it, a lot of it had to do with whether you like this person or not, it had to do with Donald Trump and his style uh, and his way of, uh, for example, going to rallies and getting people all riled up. The reason it, it's affected uh, leaders in other countries around the world is they may have been doing this, but the United States had previously, maybe still is in some circles, has been thought of as the most powerful country in the world, perhaps aside from China. Russia's a, a different, different thing, different topic. But, but many people thought that the United States was 
the country that that was or is the most powerful. And if the leader of uh, a major leading country or the most powerful country can do something, then of course they can do it too. So that's the Trump connection. Okay. So that almost like, so if there are people that had that potential concept in their mind, now they're actually seeing it on a a big stage, the center stage with the U S being center stage and other potential people that may have had that concept is going, aha, Mm -hmm. maybe it's possible. So hence what you're saying is that in fact, people that maybe hadn't thought it was possible were seeing the possibility that this could gain um, gain momentum to be a populist. Absolutely. I can tell you one quick specific example. So Viktor Orban is a populist leader of Hungary. He's got a real tight rein on the country. In fact, he doesn't think any hung- anybody should marry Hungarians, that there should only be Hungarians in the country. Other people can visit, but they're not supposed to. Uh, they're not supposed to get married and have children. Anyway, so Viktor Orban was doing his thing and Trump got in and he and Trump befriended each other. And now Viktor Orban is sort of the poster person, the poster man for the alt-right part of the Republican Party. In fact, he was recently in the United States uh, uh, speaking at uh, CPAC, which is a a political action committee. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's a big Republican um, operation. And he was here speaking and it was all over the news. So this has really helped him. It's helped his popularity in Hungary to be affiliated with the Republican Party in the United States and 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 Donald Trump too. So okay, so but, we've had through the times we've all I mean power is power, right? And right. we've either had democratic power or, or um, dicta- dic- dictatorial power. Mm-hmm. But now you're saying um, my sense of what you're saying about populism and and you know what, Karen, you're educating me as I'm sure a lot of people are listening are going, wow, that's interesting. We know how it plays out on you know, on radio or TV, but to actually talk about it and talk about history is important. So with popularism then, and what we've seen in the world, and we've seen, like you said, the US being center stage, um, do you think that a lot of people are using the model that they see what what happened in the US as now maybe we can emulate that, like you said, like with the Hungarian president? I do think that. And I think another example is Brazil. Um, Bolsonaro was a populist leader before um, before Trump was elected, or at least he was in politics. Trump is kind of a newcomer to politics, if you think about it. I mean, he was doing whatever he was doing in Atlantic City. Uh, he was in uh, his businesses in New York. So most politicians have been at this for a lot longer. And that's the case with um, Bolsonaro in in Brazil. But when Trump came in, they formed a bond as he formed the bond I was talking about with uh, the person in uh, Victor Orban in Hungary. And so it, it, uh, it's like he got a shot in the arm. 
people were wondering about him, but he came more, he became more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, the faults and deceitful things that happen with, with populist leaders is that they say all kinds of outrageous things. For example, at one point, Bolsonaro said that if a person got um, a COVID uh, vaccination, that they would turn into a crocodile. So that sounds that sounds pretty far out, but people believe these people because they're often also frequently like cult leaders. And so it doesn't, if somebody's following a cult leader and they really ad, admire and they're into this cult, it, it almost doesn't matter what they say, it's just that, that they're saying it can become believable. And that sounds like a far out example, but he did say it and people did believe it. Did people just in Brazil believe it? Or was this a, you're like, what did he have people, like you said, you know, when you think of cults, it's kind of like, what are you feeding people and, and um, having a captive audience where you can influence them. So when he said that, was that something just in Brazil or did the rest of the kind of the international platform kind of um, think- chuckle about this comment? Well, I think, as far as I know, people in Brazil, um, I mean, probably possibly know a lot about crocodiles. I I think it was a a thing that happened in Brazil. Okay, okay. So let's, let's look at it. You're a psychologist, you've been doing lots of work with people, um, you know, with myself and similar backgrounds. We know that mindset is the key thing that, you know, in, in, in culture, we buy into certain concepts. So when we think about why you wrote this book from a psychoanalytic kind of, and the subtitle is blame shifting, um, blame shifting and corrupt. Remind me, blame shifting and blame. Sh- blame sh- so it's it's projective identification, blame shifting, and the corruption of democracy. Of, of democracy. So. When we think of this and think of you writing this book, Karen, what were you trying to show the world with this piece of work? Obviously, it's, a, it's something that's, whether you want to say you understand popularism or not, um, we all put on our TVs. We all are fear-based. We've been fear-based and fear-driven for about two and a half to three years and even though we would think, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to ignore what's happening. You know, I'm about 15 minutes from the border. We're going to ignore that. It's kind of hard to do that because, of course, it's plastered internationally over every platform. Why did you decide to write this book at this time? Well, just to, to make a comment about what you said about being close to the border and, and populism uh, engendering or a breeding fear, it, it, it absolutely capitalizes on fear. So uh, people, people are afraid. So um, that's just a comment, a side comment. I wrote this book because of the mechanisms involved. And I think that they are, there again is a thread uh, that runs throughout populism around the world. And it's unfortunate that the word projective identification is, is something that not very many people know about. It's a psychoanalytic term, but there, there are a number of psychoanalysts who really don't understand it. 
that's why I came up as a I came up with the idea of blame shifting as a substitute because I think a lot of people know. I even heard the the um, president of China say, uh, or the head of China say, blame shifting in a couple of months ago. So people understand what blame shifting is. Um, so projective identification is an unconscious process. Um, people don't necessarily know that they're doing it, but blame shifting is the same mechanism, but people are aware that they're doing it. And this is the something. So if there's something that someone doesn't really like about himself or herself, and they can't tolerate it, they put it on someone else or another group of people. So for example, bullies do this all the time. Bullies have been bullied previously, and they don't feel good about what they've been bullied about. But it, the, to get rid of it feels a lot better. So they put it on another kid, say a scrawny kid at the playground. They'll say, oh, you weakling, you this, you that, call them all kinds of names. The attention is drawn to that kid and away from the bully. And the bully gets a little relief for a while. So this is the same sort of mechanism that happens that person doesn't like something or has trouble with something. If they put it on another group, then they get rid of it. And so sometimes it's oh, they're not aware that they're doing it. Sometimes they are very aware that they're doing it. This happens with populists in that they split people into good groups and bad groups of people. It's not like, okay, here's a group of people. I see their good characteristics and also their negative ones. So they see the whole person or the whole group of people. It's like immigrants are bad. So that's one thing that's very consistent uh, across, across uh, any country lines. They're all against immigration and immigrants. They're part of the bad group. So, um, and, and it eventually becomes conscious. For example, if you think about Donald Trump, he, does, he doesn't like immigrants. I don't think that's any secret. Um, and they go to extreme measures to exclude, exclude people uh, sometimes. For example, putting the Central American children in cages. Uh, that's pretty extreme. But if you don't go to that extreme, you don't have to, to be anti-immigration. Uh, you just don't want the people in your country or you don't let them get jobs or whatever. But the consistency, the, the things that are consistent is that Populist leaders um, lie and uh, they are racist and they're anti-immigration. So those are the, the main things that that uh, tie them all together. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Yeah, so, so if that's the case then, and we're talking about being it being cultish, um, and there's many populists, um, like you said, with, with your research for this book, there's many, um, it was a, you said about 10 to 12 leaders that are of this genre, I'm going to use the word genre, maybe the incorrect term. Um, so with mindset, then let's go to mindset, right? Because we know where we're at. We're in fear-based. We've been coming off and we're still in COVID. Um, 
a lot of people are petrified and I'm, I'm often still shocked, Karen, um, how petrified people are just to even do basic things anymore. So when we take that fear and then we put it in a populist context, what does that do to the mindset of the average person? Well, I think that there are, I think there are a few things. And, and by the way, I, I just want to clarify, there are many populist leaders. I think I, I read the other day that, I'm sorry if this was misleading. I think I read something about the 46 populist leaders around the world. I was I I have focused on in my, in my book. I believe there are fifteen okay. around the world, but there are many more than fifteen. Um, but those are the sort of the ones that came out and and grabbed me. So those are the ones that I wrote about. Um, what does a person do? Well, a person is either in denial and they just push politics away. They say I don't want to deal with it. I just don't go there. Uh, can't do it. Or they take sides. They um, there are a lot of people, and whether you're uh, pro-Trump or anti-Trump, this this country, for example, the United States is polarized in a major way. So that's another thing people do with their anxiety. They join up with one side or the other. Um, there are, um, I mean, obviously a lot of people who have have joined uh, with Trump. Um, I think that the the elections, the election re results we're seeing from state primaries have shown that there are a lot of people who um, are voting for Republicans and a lot of those Republicans have been supported by Trump. So that's just, uh, a, that's an example of what people do join with one side or the other. This was such a great interview that we decided to turn it into a two-part series. Be sure to tune in next week for part two so you don't miss out on the amazing content. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.